Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Thanks for tuning in. A pretty cool episode for you today. I'm interviewing Ian McKenzie. He is the creator, uh, curator of a podcast called The Mythic Masculine. I've been listening to this podcast for the last couple years, and I just reached out and asked him if he wanted to come on Hints and Guesses. So um, I think you'll enjoy our conversation. It's a great introduction to sort of the questions around the masculine and, and about the movement, the contemporary movement that almost a kind of resurgence in the in the 80s and 90s with with authors like uh, Robert Bly and and Michael Mead and um, and then it sort of fizzled out and and just in the last couple of years really there's been a resurgence of of work around or of men's work you could say more broadly but just conversations around around the masculine which I think are really needed and important and of course I've been trying to you know participate in that conversation in my own way um, I had a, a year-long program on on the book Iron John by Robert Bly and and I've done a couple of different retreats that have had um, more of a masculine orientation to them so Anyway, it's it's a it's work that I'm involved in and and basically learning more about. So that's why I want to have him on and 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 you you'll you'll he gives a us a little window into his life more broadly and and into how the podcast got started. So I hope you will appreciate the podcast. And if you want more information about his work, I'll put a link in the show notes. And he also explains how to how to find out more. So uh, yeah, that's that's where we're going. Um, and so here are some, uh, important and things that are coming up for me. One, I'll be in Colorado. This is June one through three. I'm doing a short retreat right before I speak at my, uh, friend Michael's church in Denver. So you can check that on my website. Also, I'm doing another, uh, retreat, which is more of an intensive, a little bit longer one here in Michigan. Would love to have you join. I still have spots available on both of those programs and um, I'm just excited to to be doing um, uh, spiritual work outdoors again so would love to see you there the process is pretty easy there's a short questionnaire and application all on my website kentopson.com and I'm cooking up several Israel trips already for next year I've had a bunch of different inquiries around that for sure I'm doing one April 1 through 10 um, and more information will be on my website soon about some other possibilities. So just a couple of ads in that respect. Again, always grateful to my Patreon supporters. Thanks for making this happen. And my podcast, I hope, will become a much more important part of my work moving forward because I'm, I have some big life changes coming and I've already sort of, um, I've started the process of, of letting people know what's going on. So I will be moving to Georgia with uh, my wife and kids in the fall, uh, this upcoming fall, so in six months or so. And that means I'll be uh, stepping away from C3, which I've absolutely loved. This is the spiritual community I've been a part of in Grand Haven, where I've been doing uh, teaching and helping lead for the last five and a half years. Um, which is kind of, it's sad in a way to, to let that go, but I'm, they will continue on and whatever the next chapter and evolution for, for this interesting and I think important community 
will be what it is. And, but I'll no longer be, you know, a, um, a part of it in the same way. I mean, I hope I come back and get to speak from time to time, but, um, so I'm, I'm letting that go. And, and yeah, we're moving to Georgia. My entire, uh, my wife's entire family is there and we've been dreaming about it and thinking about it for a long, long time, but never really saw the, the right window. But my kids are getting older. My um, daughter tomorrow, in fact, graduates from culinary school. My son graduates from high school and will be off to college. And, um, my youngest, uh, daughter will, um, she's going into the eighth grade and it just seemed like this is a, um, it just feels like the right time and it'll be a huge change for us. And, and one that we're excited about, we'll be tending some land, um, some family land. And we also bought land down there a long time ago, like 15 years and 15 years ago. And, um, uh, and living in a very different part of the world with a different climate. And, um, it's a small town, living in a small town in Georgia. And, um, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's known and unknown sort of at the same time. And, but it feels important and it feels, and it will be, and it's a big deal for us. So, uh, that's coming. And that, and that really means for me personally, I'm going to try to make a living as an artist, (laughs) which I I suppose I've always been doing, um, but without the help and support of C3. So I'm going to be investing a lot more time and energy into my podcasts and, um, my writing and, and teaching and retreats and Israel trips. And I'm going to try to make a go at it. And, um, that, that means your support is like, um, really helpful. And so thanks to my Patreon supporters. If you want to become one, it's easy. Patreon.com forward slash Ken Dobson and any amount from a dollar on up will support my ongoing work. And of course, um, now, uh, all my side projects will have to become, at least in the next six months or so, I'll have to start making the shift to um, the main deal. So I'll, I'll be spending a lot more time, you know, letting people know, know what's going on and what possibilities there are. But I'll be dumping things on my website. So if you want to know retreats, programs, online um, uh, classes or programs, all of that stuff will be coming in short order. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, it feels, I don't know. I know right now I'm just talking into a mic, but I also happen to know some faces and hearts and souls and spirits on the, on the other end of the, of, of whatever this weird channel is. And so I'm talking to all of you, you know, so, and a lot of you I don't know, which is also amazing, but, um, the, the podcast and my work doesn't take place in a vacuum. And, and, and of course, m- many people who listen to the podcast, I also work with one-on-one in my companion guiding um, opportunities. So um, I'm letting you know what's going on in my life and, and also thanking you for being a part of it and for supporting the work and for encouraging me and challenging me and making this thing possible. So um, I think that's enough of where where I'm heading with this podcast and a little life update. And yeah, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ian McKenzie. Peace. Yeah, thank you, Ian, for coming on my podcast here. And it's, we just sat for a minute of silence and I could, it's funny, I could feel my own like grief in a way or 
or even tenderness arising. I think it has something to do with what I hope we can discuss, which is um, the mythic masculine, not just your podcast, but um, the terrain that you've been wandering in for the last, I don't know, a couple years at least. And um, I don't know, that, that tenderness, I think, comes from, um, I don't know, my own longings and, um, and grief, perhaps. And it's not just so personal. It's like there, there's something going on with the masculine in general. And it's, it's tricky terrain right now to, to say anything at all. So um, I'm glad you're putting your own uh, voice out in the world. So anyway, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation, Ken. Yeah. Um, I wanted to begin where you often begin because I'm curious, not because I know the what you're about to say, which is where where are you in the world right now? And where are you, you know, um, where's your place? And um, what kind of place are you in right now? Hmm. Well, right now I'm in my office, which is in a shared collective space. It's called collective space. It's a co-working space here in a town called Duncan, the English name. Uh, but it's on the territories of the Cowitzen uh, peoples who've of course been here much longer than uh, people who look like me. And uh, it's a place about midway up Vancouver Island, um, which uh, I've now lived here for about six months, um, but really called the islands here home for most of my life. Um, and I actually live in a little community just about 30 minutes away, nestled next to the Cowitzen River. It's a beautiful little revillaging endeavor uh, with my family and other families and really trying to lean into, yeah, what does it mean to make culture? What does it mean to live in a way that is more in alignment with actually how humans used to and in many ways intelligently should live together, which is... Um, in connection with each other and connection with the land and connection with spirit. Mm. Um, so that's, you know, where I'll be headed after the end of this day, but uh, most of my time I'm here in studio, uh, mm. working on stuff like this. Yeah. Cool. Well, how's it going? How's your little experiment going, your community, your village? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this one has been around for about eight years now, and I've known a number of the folks for uh, many of those years and you know, one of my other parallel tracks to the mythic masculine, which we'll no doubt get into, has been as a filmmaker. So I've been a documentary filmmaker for 15 or so years. And I I somewhat made it my mission early on to try to find these edges of emergent culture and amplify them back to the collective, whether it was uh, things like sacred economics, which I did with the author Charles Eisenstein to... Uh, I went to Fukushima after 311 uh, in Japan, you know, after the partial meltdown um, to see how the Buddhists were responding. It was with uh, another friend who's now deceased, actually, who names Michael Stone, mm. uh, to amplify her, which was really following the rise of the feminine through electronic music and particularly these female artists. Um, and along the way, I was, oh, of course, Occupy Love, which was looking at the first year of the Occupy movement and, you know, what were they really pointing at? And for me, this thread has been trying to understand, right? What happened? How did we get here? What's missing, right? And in many ways that shows itself when we gather together in certain ways and feel like we touch some kind of Holy Spirit, right? Some sense of communion with each other, with 
with the big mystery. And for me, I was swimming upstream long enough. So I was like, what happened? What happened? Is it this? Is it this? And then finally arrived at a place uh, called Tamara in Portugal, uh, mm-hmm. which is a community. I've heard of this. Yeah. I have yeah. a friend who went there for a while or lived there for a while. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I, I, I was invited actually to do a film about them after they saw some of my work. And uh, I was curious, you know, they, they do some radical things around love and, you know, partnership and things, but uh, I was just intrigued. Um actually after the end of my own marriage, uh, after our divorce, that really had me questioning, right? What is it about love and partnership that I didn't know or didn't understand? And so I headed to Tamara and that launched an eight-year odyssey of actually understanding and exploring their model, uh, which certainly isn't perfect, but I would call it a a real achieved uh, regeneration of a kind of cultural way um, of village. And so for me, this is also, again, it's part of my twin missions is you know, on the one hand, to amplify models of village uh, and and culture, and then also to live them and to see, you know, again, what is it, how to actually do it, you know, right on the ground in the trenches, you know, with everybody else. Mm-hmm. I mean, I want, you know, I'm just tempted to pick up on all kinds of threads here, but um, can you just say a little bit about, well, how, what are you doing in your, in your, in this present configuration? Well, in terms of what's like the shared understanding of mm-hmm. like shared yeah, mission, what's, what's the shared understand? What what are the living arrangements? What are what are people up to? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a number of families clustered together on a, about eleven acres, and you know, there's a there's a school, there's um, you know, occasional potlucks, <laughs> there's a, a beautiful sauna, um, there's just uh, yeah ways of gathering which feel in some ways a little more organic than dedicated in a way for example like tamara is a very dedicated you know they, they know that they're in, they're trying to save the world basically like they have this real mission of how do we meaningfully contribute right to this major shift that we have to undergo and they're also german uh, so they have this real ethic of just like go go whereas uh where i live it's it's much more casual in some ways and it's just really the quality of life together right in a more organic way and it's finding its way, right? Because I'm I'm also, I often crave a sort of more clarified purpose. One of the co-founders there is, uh, he also has created an app and a, and a sort of platform, which is called Revillager, which is actually meant to do that very thing, help others basically create the toolkit and how to actually regenerate community in this way. So I would say, you know, that's one of the missions present for at least, you know, one of them there. And uh, and also, yeah, just beautiful offerings of, of music and ritual and things like that, you know, coming together are also part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Beautiful. Thank you for um, giving us a little window into that part of your life. Um, yeah. I'd like to turn to the mythic masculine in your podcast and kind of the origins of that. I'm, I'm curious about, I'll tell you a little how it came into my sort of field. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I have my own podcast obviously, but uh, I'm very involved at Animus Valley Institute in in Colorado. This is Bill Plotkin's um, institute. I've been training there for the last seven or eight years. And um, I just started noticing in uh, programs and uh, uh, in one-on-one conversations, there was a lot of uh, comfort with using phrases like um, sacred feminine or the divine feminine. And uh, far less comfort with phrases like uh, sacred masculine, which I just started using. I just started using that phrase. All right, if we're going to talk about the feminine, if we're going to talk about the sacred feminine, if we're going to critique the 
critique the patriarchy and things like this, which I would be in, in favor of, I suppose. Um, what about the sacred dimensions of the masculine? And so I just started speaking that way um, and, and maybe trying to embody that and bring forth myths and stories from my own, you know, field of, you know, interest. And, um, and, and pretty soon people started recommending your podcast. They're like, well, you need to listen to the, the mythic masculine. And um, I have my own kind of like, um, I can say more, maybe more about it in a, in a minute, but I, if you were to ask me 10 years ago, would you, would you be into men's work? I'd say, no, there's, this is something I would avoid if someone mm -hmm. said, come to a men's weekend. I'm like, no, I don't think so. So I've kind of found my, found my way into it in a sort of roundabout way. But, um, but then I did start listening to your podcast and I'm like, okay, this is, uh, the, the kind of work that I'm finding it, uh, feeds me in some way and also is raising, um, really important questions. So I guess I just want to ask, how did you come to it? Um, what was the seed that led to, I mean, you've already said you're trying to amplify voices, so maybe that's part of it. Um, uh, but what was the seed that, that brought you into this, this kind of project? Hmm. Well, like I named the, the work I'd done with a film project called Amplify Her, which was, which, you know, we, we didn't use the phrase divine feminine, you know, within the film, but that's really what we were doing. We're trying to actually make visible something that can feel often intangible through the lives of actual women and what gifts were they bringing? What, what, is the, what are the gifts of the feminine when it's allowed to be supported and platformed and given the space and the trust? Mm -hmm. And so from that journey, I, I really dove into the feminine archetypal realm. I read books like, you know, Marion Woodman, Dancing in the Flames, yeah. uh, Women Who Run With Wolves, you know, this kind of stuff. And then, of course, along that way, I thought, or it came to me, I was like, wow, I actually know very little about the masculine, masculine archetypes or anything like that. And at that point, too, I had a friend that actually had gone through the men's a Mankind Project, New Warrior Training, which was sort of one of the main ways in for a lot of men, at least in the West. And also uh, the book Iron John had sort of been swimming a little bit in my field by Robert Bly. And a friend had started reading it. It was like, man, you got to read this. And so I just, it was like hovering there. And then it wasn't until my grandfather died in 2015 that uh, he was quite a recluse, like kind of mostly estranged from the family. Didn't really know much about him. I sought him out about a decade before he died and we did make contact. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, there's a lot of similarities actually. He, you know, was really big into philosophy and, you know, he, he researched a ton and wrote a ton. And so when he died in 2015, this is after I hadn't seen him for a few years and uh, his son, so my uncle, yeah, we both ended up at his apartment. This is in the interior of British Columbia. And we're just sort of, you know, tending to his things. And his apartment was just wall to ceiling books and journals and writings and, you know, that kind of stuff. It wasn't, wasn't like pack ratty. It was just very meticulously organized. And uh, in the, in all that, amongst all that stuff, I ended up going to like the back room, I remember. And I don't know if there was a shaft of sunlight, you know, kind of coming in from the window, but I feel like it might've been. But in this stack of stuff on this one, you know, position right at my eye level or just below that was a copy of Iron John, mm. which I'd never read before again, right? But it had been hovering. And then all of a sudden, boom, it was right there. Mm. And like I said, maybe a shaft of sunlight, maybe some angels, you know, in the background, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it felt very much like this is for you. You know, it's time. And I was like, whoa, okay. So, you know, I took the hint and I brought the book back with me and I read it. And of course it really impacted me that, you know, the level of kind of being seen from a mythic lens that, up until that point, I'd felt very unique. Yeah. You know, in some ways, nobody will understand me, my, you know, my journey. And then I read the book 
And of course, it's like, oh, well, actually, there's a lot that is recognizable. Robert Bly, you know, did a did a great job in illuminating that. And so then I got curious of like, wait a second. So there's this book, which looked very popular, right, for a time in the sort of late early 90s. And I began hearing stories of like, yeah, it was a big deal, you know, that men would gather by the hundreds in like gyms across the country and, you know, really get into this men's work. And and so it it kind of opened that curiosity for me of, of like what happened and why did it seem to dissipate? Because at that point, this is 2015, right? So about eight years ago. I would say certainly we're in a renaissance now of men's work, for sure, you know, based on the organizations that have sprung up, you know, there's every man, there's sacred sons, there's all these other, you know, kind of Instagram, you know, men's workers that are mm -hmm. just rife. And so it does feel like it's, you know, it's bloomed again. And at that time, I was very like, you know, curious, like, wait a second, what happened? So I began interviewing. Well, okay, so, and then the podcast idea came to me because I'd thought, what if I made a film? But then I was like, you know, I just finished, you know, films and, and I really thought, actually, I want to go long form interview. Uh, I like interviewing. It's what I did in documentary. But this is a different, as you know, because now you're kind of a, you're a presence in the conversation. Yeah. Whereas in yeah. documentary, I was behind the camera, right? Nobody ever heard mm -hmm. me. So my learning curve was one, I didn't know how to make a podcast, but I was like, okay, I'm going to learn. And then two, I had to shift my understanding of how I show up when I ask questions and be part of the conversation. And then I began interviewing folks that were part of the original movement. Right, mm -hmm. Michael Mead, Bill Koth, who created Mankind Project, other folks, and I'd be trying to track right what happened and why, and then from there, who was missing, like what kind of voices, what kind of perspectives were not included, and could I include them? And that's really been my guiding, you know, beacon at least till this point. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, Iron John also came into my life in kind of roundabout sort of way, um, not nearly as mythic as your walking into your grandfather's house. No, I just started hearing, well, I started listening to Richard Rohr. I don't know how familiar you are with his work, Franciscan. Um, mm. And he was very influential during a certain time period of my life. I, I moved to Israel to go to graduate school. And he was kind of this, you know, companion in on my iPod as I was also doing sort of historical critical scholarship. And, and a few times he would say things like, I'm sure you were all reading Iron John in the 80s. And I'd think, no, I was not reading Iron John in the 80s. I wasn't even reading in the 80s. And then it, sort of eventually I just said, well, I'm just going to order this book. And I, I remember reading it on, on a plane to Alaska of all places. And I kept closing the book and it was like, it was a feeling of being seen as sort of you were saying, but also I had this feeling like who talks like this, who writes mm -hmm. like this? I mean, he has this kind of magic way of, of musing on the stories or spinning them in a way. And, um, but that it went in deep and I, I sort of started just with my friends sort of passing this book out, but I don't think it, it didn't come back to me, um, in a, in a more serious way until the last couple of years. Um, uh, so anyway, um, Okay. I think there were, I think there were just exogenesis as well. I've heard, which is that, you know, kind of like riffing that he does. Yeah. Right. And yeah. if you've ever heard Bly read poetry, it's very similar. He does the same thing, right. He'll just like read a line and then just riff for like 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, it, anyway. That's called being a pastor, which yeah. <laughs> it's called giving a sermon, I think, which yeah, is something exactly. I did for um, a long time. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Now, I, I guess I'm since you brought up the movement, I would like you to ask or like like you to try to respond to um, what you're calling a kind of renaissance. I, I think I agree that it went underground for a while. And I, maybe you don't have to give the whole history as to why that 
happened. Um, but it, it did sort of seem to like rush into the culture and then sort of dissipate. So where, you know, where do you think we are now? And um, who, who are these? Is there a new wave of voices? Is that what you're finding on, on the podcast? And sort of what, what new expressions are being born sort of in, in this particular moment? Yeah, well, this is instructive to look at history, I think, because without it, right, we're sort of doomed to think that we're inventing everything. And uh, this is the case why I felt strongly to go back and interview people like Michael Mead and Bill Koth and others to, to learn from what was the context of the time and also how was it responsive to the time. And so to give an example with Bill, he he said, you know, he was really responding to second wave feminism. Uh, where, you know, there was this kind of cultural moment, at least in the West, you know, in US, Canada, probably UK, where there was this, he called it like a throwdown to the men. So this women's liberation, you know, was blooming. There was the sense of reclaiming their power, like all this kind of stuff was happening. And it's almost like in any relationship, let's say just heterosexually between men and women, that there's a sense if one partner is doing the work and the other isn't, it's imbalanced, right? And you know, not, not many relationships can survive if if one's committed to more and personal growth and the other isn't, because the disparity starts to grow. And so, if you think about that archetypally in the culture, it's like the women were stepping forward and and in you know emerging from that into a different way. Um, and there was a throwdown to the men to kind of be like, okay, so what are you gonna do about it? Like, are you gonna do your work too? That's at least what Bill was sort of translating. So he was like, okay, wow, yeah, we got to do something. So he joined with an ex-military guy. Uh, Sal Tusi, I think his name was, uh, and then another fellow, and they basically crafted what became known as initially as the Wild Man Weekend. And there's a beautiful story actually with Bill where he talks about how, so Iron John at this point, I think had just come out. And they remember they wrote uh, Robert Bly and they said, you know, hey, we just held this Wild Man Weekend. It was so amazing. Like, you know, thank you so much. Like, you know, and the way he tells it too is dad, like kind of behind yeah. that, you know, they don't say dad. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, they don't say it, but it's there. And uh, and he said that he, uh, you know, Brian wrote back and he said, you know, glad you're doing it. Um, don't call it the Wild Man Weekend. Because <laughs> he said the media, the media will tear you apart. And mm. that's essentially what happened. Michael Mead talks about this too, where, you know, there was this deep fascination of like, oh, men do men's work. What's that? Mm. And uh, they would do these gatherings in the forest down in Mendocino, which I think is they're still happening with Michael. Um, but at the end of the gathering, the men would come out and there'd be cameras there and journalists and they'd be like, hey, what were you up to? You know, this real curiosity. And so like anything that sort of breaches the spotlight, right? It sort of has a shelf life of only so long. And so there was a sort of turning, I think, of the popular imagination of a way that was trying to pin it down. And then, you know, Michael Mead calls it soul work, really. But the the the, the greater kind of media wanted to call it, is it a movement? You know, if so, what's it for or not for? And uh, and then it was easy to start to characterize it, right, as, oh, men crying together or men dancing naked around the fire, you know, this kind of stuff, easy to satirize. And so that was part of it. The other piece was, uh, Bill talks about this, the, the kind of heavy appropriation that went on then, right? Because mm -hmm. there really was no existent ceremonies to pull from. So, of course, where would they look, you know, close Native American slash First Nations folks? Be like, oh, that's a cool thing. They smudge, you know. Oh, that's a cool mm -hmm. thing. They have sweat lodge. Oh, that's a cool thing. And he he kind of shamelessly says, uh, well, no, with a bit of shame. He's like, yeah, we totally appropriate it. And I mean, Mankind Project is still with that today, right? They're still kind of figuring out how, how to do it right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was this sense of uh, you know, how to decolonize this this approach to men's work, um, how to make it sustainable beyond a weekend, 
right? Mm-hmm. This is what Stephen Jenkinson talks about uh, in my interview with him. This tension between, you know, your regular life and then he calls it the weekend with the lads, you know, where you get to play wild man mm-hmm. or whatever it is and go back to your life. Like that's not a real culture. That's sort of a, you know, I mean, borderline cult in a sense, right? Not necessarily nefarious, but like mm-hmm. something that isn't really integrated with the the culture as a whole. And so all of these things, you know, became part of why it kind of had to do its own soul searching, I think, um, and had to turn in on itself and say, wait a second, yeah, what are we, what are we doing here and why? And so that was part of it, I think, right? It went underground mostly. And then not surprisingly, um, this next wave, I believe, was more fully kickstarted by a reaction to Me Too. Okay. Right. Again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, a sense, right, from the collective feminine of like, hey, you know, enough, you know, the Harvey Weinstein is this archetypal, you know, miserly King that's predating on these, the young feminine, you know, that, that in the public collective, he's kind of like the ultimate, you know, uh, symbol, symbol of that. But it really was this collective, Hey, um, no more, you know, no more trespass, no more exploitation from the feminine or um, women to the collective masculine or men. And so again, the throwdown was for men, what are you going to do about it? Right. How are you going to, mm-hmm. are you going to respond? Are you going to do the work? And so for me, that's kind of contributed to this, you know, bloom of that response that we're in today. And I'll just end with this saying the danger of course, right. Is again, thinking that you invented everything because it's happening now. Right. As opposed to doing the historical work and saying, ah, what were the pitfalls? Right. Why, you know, what do we have to be aware of um, that bedeviled the previous waves that we need to integrate better and to make it more sustainable now, right? These are big questions that have come up. Yeah. This might sound like kind of a, a, maybe even too direct of a question, but I, I want to ask it anyway, what, what problem are, is the, the so-called men's movement trying to solve? Like what, what, or you could say, what questions is it trying to address besides things like, Oh, don't, um, you shouldn't take advantage of women or um, you shouldn't take advantage of power positions or, but what's beneath some of that stuff. Yeah. You know, if I could wager some, some sense, I think that there's, I mean, it's, it's like a process of, of maybe a maturity of, of and it's why initiation, right. Of course, this is such a big concept and buzzword and, uh, presence, I think what we can touch on that maybe a bit later, but there's a sense of, again, like, uh, <clears throat> in the absence of, uh, a more integrated, uh, version of, let's just say masculinity, then there's all sorts of, um, toxicity, right? Violence against women. I mean, violence against men, um, yeah. Predation, sexual, you know, distortion and, um, you know, the, the rape of the earth, you know, based on an industry, a modern industrial complex that is constantly doesn't know how to stop, right? Like all of these things filter all the way up and down the chain. And so the kind of individual mirrors the collective in this sense that there needs to be a more integrated, relational, um, holistic, embodied version of masculinity that is able to contend with these things. And, and for one, you know, halt or redirect or reroute that energy of toxicity and and all of its consequence into a more noble uh purposeful version of masculinity that is actually desperately needed now that's one way that i might say it yeah i mean do you think about that as being primarily a cultural problem i mean is is that the setting 
is it a, is it a problem in the psyche? Is it both? I mean, what, um, if you're going to point the compass toward a certain direction, is it the cultural direction? Is it interpersonal work? What's your feeling on some of that? I believe it's certainly, you know, check a lot of boxes of, of, of lots of avenues. I mean, because there is this deep interrelationship between the personal and the collective, right? I, I do push back whenever I hear too much emphasis on the personal as the only ground for that, because clearly when you examine it, you realize that I mean, ultimately, I believe it is a cultural failing that uh, produces the kinds of behaviors that we see, um, the kinds of uh, you know suicide rates and loneliness and um, violence, uh, you know, mass shootings, like all this stuff. These are like the fruits of a culture that is failing. It's failing to produce a purposeful sense of masculinity and for men to feel a part of that, and so. At the same time, of course, you know, one could, you know, point the finger always and say, well, it's a culture, it's a culture. So yes, there is a certainly a necessary role of each individual to participate in this. But for me, it is a sense of you're participating in it personally with a deep understanding of the collective. Ultimately, it is to regenerate a collective culture, which then starts to support the next waves, right? The next men that come up. Um, so they don't have to go through the exact same, you know, wounding and the exact same need to heal to participate in the necessary way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> One can hope. Yeah. Has this changed um, for you, this conversation around the masculine since be becoming a father? I mean, I just sort of picked that up on the listen listening through the, you know, uh, through your podcasts. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the questions for me, of course, are, yeah, what kind of boy do I wish to raise? you know, and participate in and what, where, what are my own limitations? Um, this is something Stephen Jenkinson has also said that, you know, if you, as a parent, if, if you parent in a way to not uh, pass on your own issues or your own traumas to your kid, you will parent that part. You'll, you'll parent in a way that you're not wanting to pass it on is going to mm -hmm. be passed on. And so that's not to say, of course, yes, you got to integrate and do the personal work, certainly. But also for me, what that means is being able to build deep relationships with other adults, with other parents that can also provide a place to do the work that isn't then brought to my family. It's not brought to my parenting and I can be much clearer, right? And not, um, yeah, not putting stuff on him, for example, that it just isn't his and shouldn't be. And that's a big problem, I think, in nuclear situations with families where a lot you know, gets processed within the family or between the parental relationships when actually it absolutely shouldn't be and it can create a lot of wounding. Uh, and even a lot of things like, you know, the the parental projection, like Bly talks about, right, in Iron John, you need to make two rooms for the father, right? The sort of light and the dark. And the light is like all the positive benefits, right? And, and then the, the shadow stuff is in the, the dark room, but you have to, as the sun, you got to be able to make room for both. Not tolerate it all, but, it, but in a sense, recognize that fathers are complex but like you perhaps any men's space i've been in generally a ton gets uh spent ton of time and energy gets spent on essentially processing the the consequence of how a man was fathered mm, yeah and if, and of course mother does a different track on that but it's very clear right that that i you know and so i'm with men regularly in circle where it's like stuff that happened with with their father and the need to heal that relationship or to cut it off or, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's very clear, right. That that impacts the life of a young man forever. Right. And so of course I want to 
put all this stuff into practice the best I can. And it's not for me a heroic journey of I'm going to do it all alone. Of course not. It's actually how can I get other men around me that can keep me accountable so I can be as clear as possible for my parenting. Yeah. It reminds me of something that um, I got from James Hillman. Um, and he's got a book called The Soul's Code. It's, it's, it, have you... If you have you ever read this book, The Soul's Code? No, I haven't yet. Oh, it's it will seriously disrupt your ideas around parenting. I don't mean you personally, us. Um, but one of the things that he highlights in there is what he calls the parental fallacy, where he says we give our our parents too much or too little credit, and usually, you know, it swings back and forth between those things. This kind of comes from a a misunderstanding of of how an archetype works anyway. It's like we we then expect our literal father to be the embodiment of whatever the archetype is or the single carrier of both the wounded one or the one uh, uh, dishing out the wounds or the one you know unfolding the correct path. So something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I hate to sound so simple, sort of like asking, well, what's the problem? But I, I, I want to do the same thing around myth. And, and what, why'd you call it mythic imagination? I mean, mythic uh, uh, masculine. And what do you mean about, um, what are you trying to evoke there? And I imagine you have a somewhat similar understanding of myth that I, I probably adhere to, at least to a certain extent. But if you could just flesh that out a little bit, I'd love to hear, hear you riff on that. Sure. Well, to the title, so it's called The Mythic Masculine. And the reason I I had thought initially, you know, I played around with titles. I was like the mythic man, you know, man of myth. I don't know, something like that. And uh, it was actually a friend of mine who I wrote on Facebook, which is not a bad idea when you're looking for a title hmm. and say, hey, you know what? I think it might be something like this, but who knows? Did anybody have any other ideas, variations? And she wrote in and said, it's The Mythic Masculine. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> boom. That's great. But the reason I twinned those together was because Again, those, I mean, that, that was the main focus I really wanted to explore, mythology and masculinity. And in particular, I would say beyond mythology, which, you know, again, just use shorthand, the word myth. Most people in this culture now would say, oh, that means something that's not true. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's a myth. It's not true. Um, and it's interesting that that's what myth has come to mean, right? Which you can hear the prejudice that's built into that, which is, you know, there's facts and then there's myth. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's beyond even just like a, well, what do you mean? Of course, you know, there's fact, but then there's, you know, something else, but it's actually saying that myth doesn't really have any value, mm. right? Like our mythology as the, as the fullness of that, yeah. um, which is ironic or not, because I do believe, I think might've been Bly that said this, that we live in a demythologized time. Mm. Um, and it's this collapse of the mythic imagination is one way to understand it. And again, which is a bit hard to see, even when you think of, you know, how many Hollywood movies, uh, you know, like trade on myth and the Harry Potters and the Lord of the Rings, like we're myth saturated in some ways, Yeah, but they've all been kind of run through the Hollywood machine. If we're talking about film uh, and they don't tend to be seen as myth. They tend to be said like they, they seem to be entertainment, right. Or stories, mm -hmm. which, you know, have their place, but an older understanding of the function of mythology, I think was to essentially encode a relationship to place. Mm. Right. Like this is how you would live out that relationship and the reciprocity um, and the sense of being known and knowing a place, right, was was through the mythology. And I go even further in a sense of pulling from 
a root of, of mythopoetics, which is mm -hmm. a sort of unification of the way of myth and poetry and ritual, which Bly and them really adopted, which is why that whole strand of men's work became the mythopoetic men's movement, mm -hmm. uh, because they brought together a number of those pieces. Now, Bly was also influenced by uh, earlier predecessors that he studied with that used myth and fairy tale as well as a way in. And so for me, it was all those things, right? Because I, I got enamored with, I mean, not just Iron John, but um, under trying to understand from a mythopoetic lens. And the reason is because I think that illuminates a much more both interesting and um, imaginal way of engaging with the times, mm -hmm. right? I give an example. And it's, sometimes it's even so hard to avoid it because it's so right there close to the surface because we are mythological kind of seeing beings. But there was a recent talk by Tristan Harris and another fellow from the Center for Humane Technology. Uh, and they were giving it to some you know, tech guys, I think in the, the Bay Area or Silicon Valley, but it was all about AI, right? And it was called the AI Dilemma. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Okay. And in that, they actually invoke an image. They say, look, what we're doing now with AI, um, that we're creating a version of, of a golem. Right, and they use that phrase as a, as a in a way a mythic understanding of essentially animating something that isn't quite alive but is, you know, and like and I understand it comes from like maybe some old Hebrew mythology, right? The sense of Gollum. Of course, there's Lord of the Rings, you know, as a as a more recent variation, but that understanding all of a sudden invokes something quite different than simply Chat GTP or something, right? Where it's like okay, there's <laughs> yeah. like technical, you know, but it has, it's like it's sort of fleshless and not really. You know, it's hard to engage in that, but as soon as you say, "Well, there's like these AI golems," it suddenly it has its own. It you know, there's something it there, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that use of imagery like this is very powerful. And again, it's like so close to the surface for humans because that's the way we really understood how to navigate the world, right? And and to make things visible. So for me, this is why it's so vital um, because it, it opens up the spectrum of understanding, like how did we get here and where might we be going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I want to. Um just back up a little bit with something you said about myth and place. It's sort of like saying the gods were geographical, which is that that's also true. I mean, they, they, even Yahweh was a, you know, a God of the desert or something like that, or Ra was the God of the sun. There's maybe more of a universal quality with that. But um, so what happens when these myths are told, wrestled with, taken abroad, moved out, moved out of the place in which they were born. What, what happens to them? What value do they still have or do they not? I mean, what's your feeling on that? Well, I couldn't help but think of, uh, um, American gods, right. The, 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 the TV series, but of course, prior to that, it was based on the book by Neil Gaiman. And that's, really what the book's about. I don't know if you've read it or not, but maybe listeners mm. have or seen the show. Yeah, it's really this very thing. Like he talks about the gods coming from the old world to the new and in a way existing here. But um, when people stop believing them, they stop actually uh, offering, you know, to them, it's that they, they end up being essentially homeless gods. <laughs> uh, and so it's a very powerful understanding, I think. And of course, in the TV series in the book, it plays out in sort of dramatic fashion. But there is something to that. I think that there is a, what's the word, you know, because people that look like me and maybe like you, like, you know, we don't have a long claim to this continent uh, mm -hmm. very at all, you know, from folks that have been here much longer. And so in some ways, importing 
gods, right, from elsewhere, again, has the same effect. It's like the idea of, um, I, I think I've heard this at one time, it's like um, the people of the corn as an actual like lived relationship to corn or to maize, right, as a, as a mythic and as a reciprocal deity in South America, like those South American folks, they, they have, again, like an actual rooted lived relationship. But in, I think it's the US, they actually ingest more corn, i.e. through things like corn syrup and like its derivatives, like this kind of off, mm. you know, me mechanized uh, food industry, like derivatives. They, so they actually import a lot more corn, but there's no story that goes along with that, right? Like there's no right. reciprocity. There's no altars to the corn god maize. <laughs> there's no beauty making, right? Like there's, so it's, that's kind of what's been done to these spirits of place, which even then is a bit of a distancing, right? Because if you kind of track back into the old understandings, it's not like there's so-and-so the God of corn, let's say, right? Or the mm -hmm. God of the river. It's the river, the God. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's you're like thrown corn, into, the God. You're thrown into yeah. Poseidon. You're not like Poseidon is the God of the sea. You're thrown exactly, into. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that in a sense is sort of a trackable apparently like uh, from this separation, right? That occurs because as soon as you can separate that from God, or the gods understanding them as that they are gods, then you can start to imagine them to be despirited, right? Oh, mm -hmm. it's just stuff. You know, we can just move it around. We can chop it up. We can build shit with it, you know? And it's not like, you know, it's okay because now God's somewhere else, right? It's not mm -hmm. here. And so, you know, no harm. Um, yeah. So that you can see how that starts to creep in. Uh, and now kind of where we are now, which again, it's like this dematerialized or despiritualized materialism, which itself mm -hmm. is a very sort of recent aberration, I think. Yeah, which I think probably enhances, you know, if the gods are homeless, how much more, you know, is are just ordinary human beings or or people like us or people who live in a continent that they have no relationship with, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, they they've carried their um, they're living out a kind of homelessness in a way. Um, yeah. yeah, one of the things that I found as as I started to uh, work with people. And I've done a few retreats and programs that have been oriented around uh, the mask and around myths and things like this. And is that you can't do it. You can't go anywhere near it without the the conversation of the feminine. It's that it's not like there are two worlds, like we get to, to isolate the masculine and then we'll show up. And then, mm. it, so maybe we should have just a brief conversation about what, what do you, I'd like to know what you mean by masculine and, and feminine are these, do you think about them as um, dimensions of the psyche? Do you think about them as um, archetypal patterns or energies, um, all of the above, some some other way of framing it? I think that might be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this this gets interesting territory. I mean, I just came off a course that I curated called Restoring Masculinity. And one of the weeks we are brought together some guests. One is a trans woman. Uh, the other is a queer man. And we spent a lot of time kind of in this conversation, right? Like what's the value of even terms like masculine, feminine, mm -hmm. you know, divine this, divine that, like, is that, does that bind a kind of, um, yeah, neo uh, binary, which infuses it with sort of, you know, spiritual language and yet just reinforces a kind of traditional gender roles, you know, but mm -hmm. with a, a kind of spiritual dress up um, that could be, that could be part <laughs> of it. Right. That's, that's always a danger. Um, but for me, I think as a working model, what I find is an understanding that 
one, I do, I do think it's important to hold the sense that there is no such thing as universal, hmm. right? Because anything that's universal is somehow I, the idea that it suddenly is applicable everywhere at all times, that that is a, a sort of modern, um, almost like, yeah, an, a modern reaction to the specific, right? And, and also to a kind of omnipresent binary now that seems to fix itself when you simply react with another binary. So what I mean by that is you've, a lot of the gender conversations, right, are on the one hand, is it a total construct? And if so, the the ultimate victory is to throw out gender entirely, mm-hmm. right? It's like mm-hmm. you just like, uh, for example, in a sort of more radical gender activism, that gender itself, even the very notion is oppressive, mm-hmm. right? And so the the win seems to be, let's throw it all out. There's no such thing. You know, you decide how you want to be. That's That's success, right? That's how we know we've arrived. And at the same time, there seems to be uh, a kind of, that's another universal, right? That's why I brought that up. Yeah, like, exactly. All of a sudden it's, right? it's like, <laughs> we're going to well, dispel it with then. the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the danger, right? Of, of kind of reacting to something. Whereas mm-hmm. when you talk to indigenous folks that are speaking from their traditions, they tend to only talk about their, the way they do things, which is specific to their people and to the place. And so they say, mm-hmm. well, you know, this is how we do it. Uh, they don't tend to say everyone needs to do this, right? Everyone should do this. Like really that as, as sort of um, willing to go there. Right. And so there's something to that, which is masculinity could be seen as a function or a strategy in a particular cultural context. Right. So the qualities that we see as uh, valuable, right. Tend to be dependent upon the cultural context. And so what, what masculinity is seen as noble or, or the, the, the values of masculinity let's say in a patriarchal uh, modern industrial system, as in like most folks in the West experience, you can see where certain values are highly praised. Um, For example, like, yeah, strength. uh, Mm. I mean, integrity, like, you know, if you go on any of these Instagrams, uh, yeah, well, like masculine revival, I think is Mm. one right on Instagram. It's this guy, he's very much like, um, you know, men are, you know, they have to be this way and that's how God intended. And so there's this very certain way about it. Right. And I think it's important to say, okay, in a certain context, yeah, that can be seen as quite valuable, but in a different context, those very same values could be seen as actually antagonistic, right. Mm-hmm. Or, or completely out of touch with what the peoples and the place need. Um, and so it's important to be able to hold both in that regard. And so for me, same thing with the feminine, right. If it becomes a kind of um, yeah, imposed binary of, okay, you know, you have to only be a certain way. Like women is only Shakti and chaos and the man has to be, you know, stoic and Shiva and and not Mm. moving like this, this kind of stuff can be really problematic because now all of a sudden you get locked into these roles, uh, that actually the ultimate picture I think is, is an integrated fluidity really. Um, but to me, that also doesn't mean throwing out gender. You can be whatever you feel like, because that in a way also, seems to discount the that there is some kind of historical, I don't know what to call it, primordial uh, organization that uh, seems to be recognizable, right? Yeah. Just when I go when I go into a men's space too, there's something in me that just relaxes typically, right? Mm-hmm. If it's a, a men's space or if I'm in a women's space, just something else comes online. Like there's just ways of true, that just seems true, you know, that yeah. can't be also discounted because, you know, we sort of intellectually decide that it's not that way. Yeah, we just blanket say it's just some sort of linguistic construct or something like that. Do you think the psyche, I mean, one thing that I find, I find helpful when I even begin this kind of conversation is to say, 
that the psyche is masculine and feminine. I mean, that comes straight from Jung, that the, there's a masculine and feminine yeah. dimension to the psyche itself. Is that something that you resonate with? Is that helpful to you? Um, I think it's helpful as a model, right? Because I do, I do see in a very real way, for example, like the ways in which maybe I could say when I'm in more of my masculine, which is like the doer, which is productive, which is mm. very focused uh, versus when I'm in my feminine, you know, one might say as more relaxed or more emotive or receptive, like there's, you know, again, and some could say, well, you could say yin and yang, you could say, you know, you can use degendered yeah. words for that kind of stuff. And okay. Yes, you could. But to me, again, I'm always wary about throwing out any of that gendered understanding because it does seem to, it seems to throw out a little too much in my opinion, mm -hmm. when there is something real powerful about enacting these um, polarities in a way, right? Especially mm -hmm. in ritual contexts that yeah. just seems, seems potent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and what about uh, ritual contexts in general? What have you found um, just in your own, in your own, uh, journey here in your own story in your own, own unfolding in your own um, understanding of your own masculinity? Has there, have there been ceremonies, rites, rituals, initiations, um, openings that that you can speak to from your from your experience would you be willing to yeah i'd say i can share a little of my time with so in the mankind project i did the new warrior training as i mentioned which i'm curious have you gone through that as well no no okay yeah it's a pretty like it's the first real dive deep dive with anyone that uh, sort of makes contact like you're, you're meant to go through that process it's a whole it's a weekend it's meant to create a kind of initiatory descent and return and I don't have to share, you know, the whole format, but um, essentially it's a way of of really being initiated into the group, into the mankind way, but also mm -hmm. a sense of like beginning a new path, right? A new path as, as a more integrated uh, man who's also on the path with others, which can be really powerful for sure. But I'll share one, one part of the bulk of the weekend typically is what they call carpet work, which is... Uh, literally they roll out a carpet and it, it's like a shadow process uh, where there'll be facilitators and each man gets a turn on the carpet and is surrounded by the other men. And there's some invitation into some kind of process, right? What do, what do you want to work with? Is it uh, a story of, or experience of, or a wound of shame? Is it a power dynamic, you know, with a father? Is it a rebirthing ceremony needed? Or, you know, like you kind of go into some way of processing something. And so for me, what emerged was, um, really kind of interesting to me again, because it's like the psyche can be very, uh, it can be a trickster, right? The, the things you think yeah. at the surface, you're like, oh yeah, you know, I kind of know myself or aspects, right? And then in certain contexts, when in this case, I got sort of lovingly, but fiercely cornered mm -hmm. by in a situation where it's inviting in the deeper layers, I was really surprised because what happened was you know, essentially I was invited into the circle. The men were, the facilitators were like, okay, you know, what do you want to work with? And we kind of set up a different container of something that ultimately wasn't quite true. And I, the facilitator actually called it. He's like, wait a second, I don't see, this doesn't feel true. Like, I don't see you reacting much to it. And I felt when that happened, I was kind of like, oh, good. He, he's aware, like he caught it, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't doing this consciously. Right. But what happened after that, he's like, what's really going on? And I, what came to me was I said, I don't need any of you. Mm, mm. right like that that's what came out i was like i don't need any of you you men yeah. like and it wasn't them specifically right it was actually quote two men in my life mm. where ultimately you know i was sort of entered into a process where 
I was able to inhabit the place that was deeply disappointed by the lack of strong, you know, uh, healthy masculine presence in my life. And in a sense felt betrayed actually that, mm -hmm. and it literally came out. I was like, where were you? Yeah. You know, where have you been all the time? Yeah. Right. Wow. And, and like, mm -hmm. where were you when I was 14 mm -hmm. and the men should have come for me and taken me out to the woods and, yeah. you know, brought me into the world of men. Where were you? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it was quite intense actually for me, even as I was saying it. Right. And a surprise, I imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so that really led into a, basically through a process where I was able to, you know, own, of course, what was my piece and as ultimately um, fall into a degree of trust with these men where I was able to relinquish the part of me that was really trying to be a hero, you know, really trying mm -hmm. to do it all, really trying to save the day, you know, basically to pick up on the slack from all these other men that had just betrayed or, or never shown up. And mm -hmm. I was able to really claim for myself the part one, that it's okay just to do my part. You know, like I was able to kind of come back to a sort of a humble human scale of, look, you don't have to do everything. You can just do your part. And the other piece was a deep, deeper degree of trust in men, that there were men that actually cared about mm -hmm. this, that were willing to hold space for, you know, for me. Um, and I would say that began my, the next chapter really, where I have a sort of core faith in men now, mm -hmm. which in the past I didn't, right? Like it was somewhat unconscious, but mostly like most men who haven't done this kind of work, It's a bit like you just kind of fear the realm of men, right? It's just, yeah. you know, you might have some good buddies or two, but it's like generally you don't really trust men. Maybe there's an undercurrent of competition. Mm. Um, you know, there's just not really a, a deeper solidarity, um, mm. I find. And so that really began that for me, which, you know, has continued to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah. These kinds of ritual ceremonies or ceremon ceremonial spaces is When done well, I mean, it, it like evokes something that is just beneath the surface and it, it wants to come forth and, and make itself known. And um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. I do want to be mindful of the time here. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I want to ask two, two things maybe to, to bring things to a close. Um, in some ways, I, I feel like we could go uh, much deeper, um, but I'm, I'm grateful for the ground that we've covered so far. I want to ask like, Hey, if, if someone's, um, new to your podcast, where, where should they start? Um, besides saying the beginning, I mean, you just where, sure. where, where should they start? And, and, um, and maybe the second is what's, what's on the edge for you. You, you mentioned this restoring, um, endeavor, like what's, what's on the edge for you. What's, uh, mm -hmm. currently, uh, working you. Yeah, I would say, well, first of all, under the uh, my website. So if people go to The Mythic Masculine, you can go to the all episodes. And then you can actually choose playlists, right, that I've curated based on categories. Mm -hmm. And so there's one actually under Mythopoetic History, which, again, if, if uh, someone's interested to kind of touch on a lot of the points that we came up with here, mm -hmm. which is to look at, you know, what happened to the movement specifically and having different folks kind of weigh in and, and different sort of the temporal... Um, stream of of different moments, then that's a good place to start, and or just look at other categories, right? Of the of the playlist, you know, there's folks for decolonization from there's uh, episodes from Black guests, from Indigenous guests, queer guests, mm -hmm. right? Like I kind of tried to keep these uh, categorized so folks could plug in, right? In that way, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in terms of yeah, what's the edge? I mean, for me, I feel I mean I'm still particularly drawn to conversations around relationship and and sort of you know, the, the, the edges of relating and, um, how to better, I mean, both personally, you know, navigate these realms and, and offer useful 
commentary and conversation around this. Um, I think ultimately, you know, my deeper question too is what does it mean to generate to create regenerative masculine culture, mm-hmm. right? Beyond um, sort of weekend workshops and you know sort of consumer based offerings. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right, mm-hmm. because it's just a challenge. I mean, not just to men's work, but also to any so it's that kind of endeavor, it's personal growth. Any, yeah. yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I haven't solved that yet, but you know that's part <laughs> of the the question. Well, we'll check in later when you do. So sounds good. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate it. And anything, um, anything else you want to say sort of in closing, um, the, you know, the mic is yours. Well, I'd love to invite folks to check out, uh, the, the film. I mean, it may be coming to a place near you, uh, the village of lovers, uh, again, as an example of what a whole other cultural ecosystem of how it could be. And, I'll just say again, one brief story there is, so this is Tamara, again, that I'm talking about, Mm. this eco-village in Portugal. I actually started, well, I experienced for the first time an intergenerational men's circle there. Uh, Mm. This is back in 2015, again, just just before, or no, just after I'd uh, retrieved Iron John, actually. And again, there's the timing of that is just beyond synchronicity. But during the love school, which is what I was part of within the community, uh, they held a, a men and women's circle separately. And for me, again, that was the first time that I'd been in an intergenerational space, right? With older men, younger men. And there was something so profoundly healing for me in that, right? That I just never knew even existed because I'd never been in that, that I feel so deeply grateful for that. And so I would just encourage any folks and, you know, especially men listening, if you're not in a circle, you know, there's ways to make that happen. I mean, there's ways to create your own. There's lots of research out there, books you can read on how to craft a circle. but I would just say that there's something beyond, you know, the intellectual understanding. There's something when you practice it, uh, when you're in that cauldron together, some things become possible uh, if you're willing to do so. And so I would just suggest that men take that leap if they haven't yet. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, this is uh, it's been it's it's been a pleasure talking with you and just hearing your voice. I mean, you're already in my head anyway, and <laughs> through my headphones. So <laughs> it's nice to have a live conversation. So I appreciate your mm-hmm. time. Yeah, thanks, Kent. Appreciate the questions. And uh, yeah, thanks to your listeners.